0: All right, folks. Welcome back to the What's on the Line podcast. I'm David Sikorsky, the executive director of CCA Maryland. That's the Coastal Conservation Association, Maryland. Our website is CCAMD.org. And uh, thanks for joining us. So last episode, episode nine, we talked with, uh, with Chris Horton from the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, CSF, about some... Different measures in the Gulf and some different changes that have happened with how managers look at data or who is collecting the data and then how it's used to manage the red snapper fishery. And of course, I provided some uh, some parallels or some differences and some connections to the striped bass conversation that's continuously unfolding here in the Mid Atlantic, here in Maryland. And we do not have another update yet as of uh, today, February twenty second, on the summer and fall measures that Maryland DNR plans to put in place. But we're expecting them to follow option four and uh, split a, you know, limits between private anglers and those that fish on charter boats um, and, and do all other sorts of things. So we'll see when that comes out. We'll definitely be doing an episode on that. Might be episode 11, might be episode 12, who knows. But we're talking about data management and policy uh, a bit more this year than, than we did in some of last year's episodes. And that's just so you folks can understand exactly what's going on and what will be on the horizon. Because, of course, when uh, managers are making decisions with uh, less than ideal data, the recreational fishing industry and uh, and those that support our industry um, continue to pick up the ball and run with it and try and find solutions. And so we're continuing along in, on that vein today with this conversation. And on the phone, I have uh, Brett Fitzgerald, the executive director of the Angler Action Foundation. That is the organization that created iAngler, and iAngler tournament. So Brett has been a, a tremendous friend of CCA Maryland and supporting our tournament work for the last many years so we can do catch photo release tournaments and uh, he's gonna we're gonna talk all about iAngler from the fishing fisheries management side the data it's collecting why it uh, why it was created and where it's gone from there so thanks Brett for joining us how are you doing today
1: I'm great thank you very much for having me on
0: absolutely glad to glad to how is it in uh, sunny south Florida today
1: uh, well it's actually it's a you know not great fishing weather. <laughs> I was thinking about actually going offshore today in my little boat and I saw the uh surf reports calling for ten and a half foot swells. So um, yeah. it's definitely a freshwater fishing day today. <laughs> sounds like it
0: sounds like it. Well it's not too cold, right? It's it's a little chilly here in Baltimore. Uh how is it how no, is no. it down there?
1: Yeah, about seventy degrees today. Love it. Seventy and sunny and breezy.
0: Well, so maybe that's a good segue actually. Cold weather would be a good segue to how iAngler came about. If I'm not mistaken, there were some major cold outbreaks that really affected the uh, the game fish populations and all the populations um, in Southwest Florida and, and throughout Florida. So, if I'm not mistaken, that's really that was kind of the catalyst of starting iAngler. Is that correct?
1: Yep, that's absolutely right. It was uh, 2010. 2010. So, the, uh, late in December and into the New Year, we had a really what we've been calling a historic cold snap. It was about a week and a half of consistently low temperatures and a consistent northeast blow, and it it rained the whole time. And so typically we get a couple of cold days. The cold fronts come down starting around that time of year, and they last for a couple of days, and then it warms up again. But that one was really strong. And and really what happened in particular to snook, which is a a temperature – intolerant fish they're it gets below a certain de- temperature degrees and they just belly up um, and southwest florida really got hit the worst because with that wind blowing hard from the northeast you know, there's areas in there that are kind of shallow the water comes back and forth with the tide and the fish will kind of stage up when it gets cold they'll get to a deeper water and wait when the tide comes in they'll move out a little bit deeper if, unless it started to warm up and, um, with the tide, it you know, wind not so hard. The tide never came in. So the fish got trapped up inside there in the shallower areas and the, the temperature in there just dropped. Some areas had ice on it actually. And so when the wind did stop and the tide came in, it washed out tens of thousands, if not millions of, of snook and other fish just in the Southwest Florida. Wow. So wow. Wow. it was a, there was a lot of very concerned anglers.
0: Yeah. And so what, sure. uh, what was the next step? I, I assume, um, I just saw actually, um, just this past week where there was an announcement that I think was, is current, um, where Florida Fish and Wildlife or uh, FWC, um, decided to maintain a catcher and lease only fishery in Southwest Florida, which is the same area originally affected by the cold, but also recently affected by some of the red tides and the, in the terrible water quality, um, happening, uh, down there in recent years. So, um, Am I mistaken? Or so is that the similar action that, that FWC took after the, the freeze to, to
1: stop fishing? It, 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 the exact same action, you're right. And this area is a little bit like the, the snook was closed statewide by an executive order from the executive director of FWC, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission. Um, and in 2010, it was just snook. As soon as it was cold and they saw so many were were knocked out, he went ahead and, and closed the fishery to harvest. Of course, anglers could still target them, um, but they closed it down because they just had no idea how bad the fishery was was hit. And we'll kind of come back around to this current red tide situation, but the similarities here are, one, when it comes to the fisheries management, you know, since we're talking about data collection and fisheries management, The method of capturing data from fishermen um, is those dockside intercepts primarily. And they look in the cooler to see what you've got and measure the fish. And so when a fishery is closed and there's nobody bringing fish back, obviously there's not going to be any intercepts. So it becomes a fishery that's very data poor. Um, So, you know, they closed it and they immediately knew, okay, well, We're we're going to have a hard time figuring out when we can open it again, because we don't have any way to track this fishery now to get data from recreational fishers because no one's going to be able to harvest it. So, um, you know, at the time, our name was the Snook Foundation. We weren't the Angler Action Foundation, and we were founded by Moat Marine, this great research lab here that does a lot of fisheries work and. They do all kinds of stuff, aquaculture and and different stuff like that. But they're based on the west coast of Florida. And the initial intent was just to raise funds to help them research snook. So we were very snook-based. So, of course, we had a lot of memberships and a lot of followers down here that were just snook fishermen. And snook fishermen are like stripers. They're a a fanatic kind of semi-crazy bunch. (laughs) So... When when there was thousands of them dead, we were getting calls at the foundation, you know, ten or twenty a day. Some people that were literally crying, these crusty, salty old fishermen, because they were just seeing so many dead snook, and they were like, well, what can we do? How can we help? And at the same time, FWC actually reached out to us and said, "Hey, we need to get together and put together some type of a survey that you can distribute to your membership, because we need to know what they're seeing." When they go out there to target snook, catch, and release, are they catching any? And it ends up, you know, of course, they're asking much of the same kinds of questions that they're asking for, um, you know, dockside surveys for fisheries management. Where were you fishing? How long did you fish? How many did you catch? How many people were fishing? How big were your fish to the nearest quarter inch? Those types of questions. Mm -hmm. So um, they actually helped us design the survey, and and NOAA contributed as well we had them look at it and texas was actually, was a big coal front texas was there's a snook population in south texas so texas parks and wildlife actually contributed and looked at it too said yeah we think this would be helpful for us as well and that's really what was it that's how it started we called it I Angler. we call it angler action the angler action program and the uh and it was a paper survey that these guys had to pick up from us take out in the boat. You know, write down their tallies, then go home to a website that was just kind of clunky, and take the time to log in, create a username and password, and all that stuff, so that they could feel secure that if they're going to actually give their location, it's not going to get stolen by somebody. And um, we started capturing that data in that way. So, fast forward to the next that summer, we already had thousands of hours of snook-directed fishing trips. And a lot of data, which was great because a guy named Dr. Robert Mueller, um, not the FBI Mueller, but uh <laughs> did, guy that's actually got a cooler him. job. He's a <laughs> our, our Dr. Bob is in, is in charge of all of the stock assessments in the state of Florida. So he's a pretty smart fella, and, um, you know, really involved with all the fisheries. So he said, yep, send it over, we're ready for it. And, and right away he said, this is great this is really going to help us. It immediately became their direct source of data for the geographic distribution of snook that were caught and let go and the size structure of the snook that were caught and let go. And primarily those were the two areas that it plugged right in, became the best available data for their Florida stock assessment, which they did an interim one right then to try to get a handle on things. So, uh, it was great because they realized right away. Okay, we can open it on the East Coast, and then shortly after that, they opened it again on the West Coast, and they used the angler that, or the, excuse me, the data that recreational anglers kept as the you know, primary source of information to open the fishery back up.
0: That's amazing. Do you, Do you ever recall how many how much data it was? How many um, entries or or logs from folks over a, a certain time period that was enough? I mean, how many anglers are involved, or anything like that?
1: Um, I I don't actually remember. I used to keep track of that stuff because I watched it, you know, every day. Yeah. You know, once once we start, once we realized they were going to use it for something, we were super excited, and of course they you know they asked us, hey, we can use this for other species, and it expanded. Initially, they wanted just six other species, uh, six species total. You know, and that was the the inshore game fish that bonefish, tarpon, and permit, which are three that they don't get a lot of dockside intercepts. Mm -hmm. It's okay, it's perfect for them. And also, since there's so much overlap of anglers, we'll put sea trout and redfish on there as well. And sea trout and redfish are are, uh, species that FWC considers to be what they call data rich. They get enough intercepts that it works in their models for their stock assessments that they run every five years or whatever the time frame was. Um, but you know, more information is better. And especially you realized again, you have this event where it happens today and you've got to take action within a week. As you know, the current modeling for stock assessments just isn't designed to be that nimble right. and to be that reactive. So, um, you know, there's we we saw that there's opportunity to help them out in, in those types of regards.
0: That's great. So in but in the snook stock assessment, which is Florida manages themselves, it's not an interstate management system. Is that correct? Correct. So yes, are they still prior to iAngler coming aboard and prior to some of these these challenges you know brought about by the freeze? Were they using MRIP data? Or were there any other systems in place to help assess the stock of snook from a, yep. a recreational angling dependent perspective?
1: Yep, there was. There is M MREP data, and it is. It was used, and still is. Mm-hmm. It still is part of the part of the process there, and it it actually was great for us because um, you know, as we we now have an app, iAngler, and a, and a suite of apps actually kind of work with it. But what was good for us is to have that MREP data to compare our self reported data too, and a, a graduate student at the University of Florida, and they received some money, and he did a comparative analysis of Florida's angler, snook, trout, and red catch rates compared to MRIPS in the state of Florida. So, um, you know, when you talk about how much data you have and how much you need I don't know what they need to run the modeling for their stock assessments, but for that particular study, um, I, you know, I had a lot of talks with that that student at the time, who um, ended up actually working on cobia in Virginia nice. afterwards. But that, established, that, that study was published in Fisheries. I want to say it was December two thousand seventeen. Um, and, it, and it basically showed that, you know, you, it was difficult to compare the data for the whole state because we have areas where there's gaps, where we don't have a whole lot of people reporting. Mm-hmm. In iAngler. angler, um, you know, for the most part, we we get the word out there by word of mouth, going to fishing clubs and telling people about it. And we're, we're a small organization with a low budget, and that's, that's what we have found is the most effective way is just to get in front of anglers and tell the story. But in the areas where we've been able to do that, in the Tampa area where there's a lot of people reporting, down in southwest Florida and um, here in the kind of central southeast coast in Palm Beach County, uh, for all three of those species, the catch rates lined up almost perfectly with EMRIP. So it was, we were very concerned. They were saying, well, people aren't going to report their zero catch trips. There's going to be all kinds of biases. And I'm Sure, there are some things that we still have to look at, but it was a great first study that says it's not as bad as everybody thought it was going to be. You know, because iAngler works as a logbook for you, and you, you know, that's one of the one of the hooks that we have for people to use it. It becomes your personal logbook, and as you know, it doesn't do you any good to not report your zero catch days, your, your skunk days, because you're not going to learn anything. <laughs> Yep. When you go back through and do some kind of comparative analysis of your own information. Absolutely. So I and it's, it's part of our education. And when we talk to people, explain to them the value of those reporting those bad days as well as the good days. Um, so, and also the length information was close enough that the differences were statistically insignificant. So, you know, we do know from that, that recreational anglers, are able to report the basics accurately enough if they take the time to do it, the information is going to be um, accurate enough or close enough to MRIP that, you know, we should be able to start looking into it in closer details and, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out what the other biases are and make measurements for those and, and work it out.
0: Absolutely. So you mentioned the different, uh, the suite of different apps that, that the Angler Action Foundation has created and, and, manages, and I'm, of course, aware we've talked about iAngler, which is an app, um, iAngler Tournament, which we're, we've been using for many years now in CCA Maryland, and then there's one here in, in the Chesapeake, Chesapeake Catch, and that's where I first got introduced to the Angler Action Foundation, at the time the Snook and Game Fish Foundation, um, and uh, was on the, uh, as a volunteer, helping out, trying to give an idea of how things may may work here in the Chesapeake to create a similar um, data collection system than the app here in the Chesapeake, but and if i look at your website which angleractionfoundation.com um yep. i'm going to of course put that in the in the description of the podcast but you can see all the different uh all the different brands and um so to speak a little bit about kind of the evolution of where some things came on I've, so the snook was the you know the, the catalyst that created this this great solution or or you know, supplement to, to data for, for managers. And so what, where's it gone from there? Are there some other key fisheries that, that I angler and the angler, angler action foundation have been involved with?
1: Well, you know, the, the Chesapeake catch actually is a, it's a great story in itself because, you know, it was a, it was a good lesson learned. And really what was great about it was when you're Maryland DNR, they were able to tell us once they saw how the information was being used in Florida. And by that time it, it had been used in snook and sea trout and red drum stock assessments in the state. And those aren't small fisheries Mm -hmm. in the state of Florida. Those are important inshore fisheries that have an impact on economics and, you know, a lot of people involved there. So it's not something that the state of Florida would take lightly. So I think when your, your folks saw that, and, and after talking to Dr. Mueller and some of the folks, I said, okay, these are the fish we, we need this type of information about, which was great. I thought, oh, this is going to be perfect. They're handing it to us on a platter, and this is going to make the outreach so easy. Um, and then what we learned was we didn't come in hard enough with outreach and education. Um, and so, you know, Chesapeake catch never really took off the way that we would have hoped that it would, because, again, we we learned from that experience that, we just didn't put enough effort up front or didn't understand how much effort we would need to put in to get the word out.
0: Right, right. Well, and quite often, it takes a little bit of a crisis to, to get anglers to, to pay attention to the value of this information. And you know, just like the snook freeze, um, folks that cared wanted to get involved. And uh, I think, unfortunately, we've been on a downward path with striped bass, our, our largest fishery by far. And, uh, and that was probably part of it at the time when Chesapeake catch was developed, it was probably the peak of the straight bass fishery and, and nobody would have thought, oh, there's not, not good enough data or, or that volunteer or that anglers needed to engage in a volunteer survey system, uh, to help supplement data. And so it's, it's, um, it's not a blame conversation. It's just a matter of, uh, when there's not necessarily a direct need to affect something in a positive direction, um, folks don't engage as much. Is that the case with, with like, have you seen a trend where when fisheries are, are really stable that less and less people are participating in these type volunteer efforts? Oh,
1: there's no question. No question. There's probably as many people logging now as there was when we started mm-hmm. here in, in the same areas, but it's not the same people. The people that were just diehard snook fishermen, many of them have dropped off and other people come on. So it's, and, and the reason they dropped off is, again, there's no there's no crisis, there's no immediate crisis, and it's not something that they would have done intuitively, so you know it just kind of drift it it's something that drifts away so it's just like uh the fishing license plan of recruitment and retention and, and it's it it's it requires that sort of same maintenance mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you know it it also it just might not have been time for something like that up there yet because you you're always it's it's a new concept that a recreational angler can just enter the information into a phone and it's going to be helpful for managers to understand a fishery and there's a lot of mistrust everywhere you go between recreational anglers and fisheries managers and oftentimes that's unjustified and oftentimes it is justified because they feel disenfranchised because the stock assessment modeling isn't quite working for the species that they're concerned about and they feel like or oh, you know so there's some kind of nefarious reason for it that the, the state doesn't want us catching snook anymore or something they right. don't they don't, you know, we didn't know about stock assessments when we started giving data to the state of Florida we thought oh my god we're going to replace RIP. Mm-hmm. you know and i think we may have said that out loud and we actually lost some traction as a credible group providing data because we didn't mean anything malicious about it. We didn't realize so many people were going to take that personal, but we also didn't know that it's actually not going to happen and would be a bad idea if it did. Um, but we we certainly feel we can supplement MRIP and improve their stock assessment process.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, every – and that's it, because you're supplementing just increasing the amount of intercepts that are occurring. We talked about that with the red snapper situation with, with Chris Horton, and we talked about how every state's doing it a little bit differently, and that's important, because Zemrip's still the base and, and still the federal, you know, the federal consistent across all, all the states that, that fish in, in coastal waters. So you're, you're really just supplementing it fishery by fishery and species by species as, as is needed, and this is a you know, tremendous way that anglers can actually you know help steer the ship in the right direction.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and many so that's always been an issue with is getting anglers to trust what it is that we're doing. Um, you know, it's not so much of an issue down here, people that are familiar with it, that they don't say, well, it's, they're not going to use it because they know that that's not true. We've been able to tell them it's been used in half a dozen stock assessments now and, and played a, a significant role in those stock assessments here in the state. Um, you know, some of the other projects that we've moved on to, is we've had a couple that were very local and specific, one down in the Everglades National Park. Uh, that was, uh, there's an area called Joe Bay that was closed to fishing for about 40 years because it's a crocodile, saltwater crocodile nursery. And that population has recovered enough that they said, all right, we can probably let some fishermen back in this area. Wow. So you're talking an area that's back up in the middle of nowhere that hasn't been fished by anyone but the handful of poachers that go up in there for 40 years. But the trade-off was you had to report your fishing data. And it's also not only a, a no-motor zone. You can't have a motor on your boat, so you've got to go out there with a canoe or kayak on your boat. It takes an hour or two by water to get there in the power boat and then you've got to tie off on a post and paddle in. Wow! And then you can report either through the Bay app which is a straight-out angler action skin just has the information that they want, you know, in particular, um, or they could write it on a piece of paper and stick it in the box, or they could um, enter it directly into a website. But what was neat about that was that first summer that they looked at the data, there was immediately information that was reported by recreational anglers that they didn't know about, and the big one was they had they have these underwater cameras and Joe Bay, and that's how they count the fish in there. They've got different stations, and they put some chum in, and they record all the fish that come by and mark them down. And they had never recorded a sea trout in that area, and that was like the fourth most common fish reported by the recreational anglers, and they were big. Huh. In the rest of the state where the sea trout population is getting smaller and smaller, the fish that are being reported, the size structure is getting truncated down and down. All the fish in into Joe Bay, the sea trout were were very big over I'm almost all of them were over the slot, like and it's a slot managed fishery. So yeah. Yeah, yeah it's kind of a neat spot.
0: Well that's interesting. It's it's you know, that's that's a neat little story of getting a better picture of what's happening out there. And uh there's so next week um I'll be at the MREP, the Marine Recreational Education Program, not M um, I think I got that acronym right anyway. Um, and it's, we'll yeah. talk about all these different surveys that go into a stock assessment. And, you know, what we're talking about are fishery dependent. They're re- dependent on recreational anglers and, and the, uh, scientists or the state managers working together. Um, there's all these other things that go into a stock assessment, but another thing we'll talk about next week at MREP is, um, is cooperative management, and that's exactly what this story is. That's exactly what the story is in the Gulf and exactly, the, I think, the kind of story that the, uh, we're ripe for here in the uh, in Maryland, for sure, in the Chesapeake Bay and, and for uh, for definitely striped bass and, of course, all the other fish we, uh, we interact with. And it's a classic problem, and that leads to the mistrust you mentioned. When anglers see something on the water, they know it's happening, they, they know what they're interacting with, and then the data doesn't support it that the managers are using for management or the managers are unfortunately making decisions not really based on the data like we have in our, uh, our spring catch and release uh, fishery up here in Maryland that just got announced a couple weeks ago. You know, Forget the science and, and the realities of what anglers experience on the water and just close fisheries to access. So it's interesting to hear um, the reverse of that, opening up a fishery for access uh, through the use of, of iAngler and then teaching the scientists and the folks that are managing something new. That's a, it's always a, a bright spot.
1: Yeah. You know, our, our latest collaborative partnership, it was with the South Atlantic council and we built a you know, whole new app. Of course, and, you know, technology changes. So we thought, well, we're going to update everything. We're going to streamline it. And so the program we're working with them is the iAngler My Fish Count project. And that's an app that we co-run, co-manage with the South Atlantic council right now. And uh, I think towards the end of this year, that, Partnership will shift, and ownership and management of that app and data will come completely away from the council and back over to us. Um, And there's kind of political reasons for that, and and, Mm -hmm. um, but it it was it was a great way to get it started because you've got fisheries scientists like uh, Dr. Chip Collier, who's really really smart, and he really wants to get this right. He wants to figure out how. To make this work, he recognizes that there's fisheries that that just doesn't fit the current model that they're trying to use. And you have these, you know, most of the time, the biggest issue that you're having is dealing with an expansion expansion factor, mm-hmm. right? If they're not getting enough intercepts and they've got to say, all right, well, this is going to represent this one intercept of somebody has to represent X number of anglers. And so you can have a one boat come in with a certain offshore you know, federal species that everybody got their limit. And that once they expanded out and say, well, that's got to represent, you know, 250 boats in this wave, that one intercept might close a fishery for a year. And it's happened with tilefish. Um, You know, we had a similar situation with hogfish down here. So um, Dr. Collier he really wants to figure out what it's going to take to make this work. And so it's been a great partnership. He's been a, a real blessing. And one of the things that he said we need to put into the My Fish camp, because that was originally designed for Red Snapper in the South Atlantic. And, you know, we have a lot of the same situ- situation here that they had in the Gulf. The anglers are reporting. They're catching a ton of fish, bigger fish. They can't fish through them to get to anything else, and they're – You know, it's just they need to have more access. And of course, the modeling is showing the opposite. The days are giving, the the days to access that fishery are getting less and less and less. Hmm. So when my fish count went live, there was a six day red snapper season that year, two, three day weekends. And one of the things that we included on that, under the advice of Dr. Collier, was to put a tab in there where anglers could say whether or not they were able to complete their fishing trip, and why not if they didn't? So in other words, you could plan your trips in advance even on that app. You could, oh, we're going, you're coming down here to Captiva. We've got a charter. We can preload all that information so when that day comes, we could just open the app and it's ready for us. Just put in a couple of buttons and then we're done. So it turns out 85 to 90% of the trips that were planned on those two, three-day weekends were unable to be taken because we had really bad weather. People just couldn't get out the inlet. So there was no other way for them to really have a measurement of that until this app data. And they actually looked at that app data and said, oh, geez, well, I, I guess we can give them three more days because we expected you know, 2,000 boats to run out of this inlet that weekend and only 50 went out total. So certainly aren't going to catch the numbers we thought they were going to. So again, that one was right away, a, a success story in the sense that it gave them a better understanding of the fishery in that short window, and anglers benefited, for, you know, in in the form of more days on the water, more access to that fishery.
0: That's that's great. That's fantastic. I'm sure you got another one. <laughs> so, how about the? Uh, yeah.
1: Well, you, go ahead. No, I was just going to say. You know, it, it, the hard part about that is it 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 could go the other way mm-hmm. and it's got to be part of the story as well but you know as well as i do most recreational anglers are fine with that if the data actually says all right we've got to reduce our harvest and it's what they're seeing in the water no one's going to argue about that
0: yep yep you know yeah exactly no, there's no question about that and and the uh I don't know if we talked about it with Chris. I think I think uh, I've talked about the striped bass stuff so much I forget who I talked to what or who I talked about. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> what, yeah. what, you know what I mean. <laughs> anyway, um, sure. Well, and one major change that's happened um, for all all marine fisheries is that that MRIP has changed its methodology in the last couple of years, and so that's one of the things that's led to some of the challenges with striped bass, where private angler catch and effort has gone up quite a bit and for hire or or commercial uh, catch has not um, gone up because their data collection systems have pretty much stayed the same and so it was a change of uh, calling people at their household phone which they used to do for the mrip sample um, aside from Mm -hmm. the dockside intercepts and it turned into a mail survey and uh and the outcome once uh once this this Uh, data was analyzed was that there are a lot more trips and there's a lot more recreational angler catch on the private side on the shore based side and depending what fishery you're looking at some of the numbers are just through the roof and uh and and have a a rating something called pse which is pretty uh inaccurate a pretty high level of pse so a high level of uncertainty and and I, i would assume that that in a situation like we have for private anglers it's the perfect time to implement some supplemental efforts with a tool like iAngler, MyFishCount, ChesapeakeCatch, to capture that more data, which is a supplemental piece, to try and compare to the MRIP data and say, you know, is this real? Is this right? So are there any thoughts you have on the right way to implement plans in a place like the Mid-Atlantic and, you know, with the state-managed fisheries? um, Have you dealt with – so you dealt with state-managed fisheries in Florida, which were Florida alone – And we're talking about the South Atlantic Council, which is federal waters, and uh, three miles to 200. Um, But if Uh you bring it back up here into state waters, what are your thoughts on on trying to implement and what some of the next steps could be for things like striped bass or or maybe some other species up here in the mid-Atlantic?
1: Yeah, well, um, you know, I'll just start with a statement that I I feel like it has to be done. If it's not eye angler, it's got to be some other type of partnership between the managers and the recreational anglers so it's not a question of you know should we do it i think that it's something that has to be done if we want to get it right because fishing pressure is not going to decrease and we're not going to get more uh, nursery habitat for our fisheries and more you know quality habitat for these fish so we've got to become better at managing them and we see, you know, we talked about that cold event and this current red tide event, hurricanes and storms, there's all kinds of things that can happen. You could have a chemical spill, some kind of point source pollution that wipes out a year class. And the, the current management models just aren't sensitive to that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So by design, we've got to come up with something that helps us deal with those types of things. And as, whether it seems like it's getting more volatile, if that trend continues and we keep having the same trends move with with what's happening with our climate, it's going to become more of an issue. There's no way around it. So we've got to figure it out. Now, how that happens is going to be very interesting because even here in Florida, where we've had success, we still run into roadblocks. There's still people that don't trust the idea of entering data into an app that someone else is going to see. Some people don't trust other fishermen you know it's the fact that the data is owned by by us fishermen it's a private nonprofit not the state um some people don't trust the fact that we're in partnership with the state so we're we're friends with the enemy which makes us enemies right. um and some people from the state still hold on to the idea that there's too many biases in this data we can't use it we don't want to use it and so there's still internal resistance in it it vacillates. It really kind of depends on the personalities of the people that are in charge at any given time. So it's not like we're going down a path here in Florida where, okay, we've got this licked. I've got the same issues in front of me at different to a different degree than I had 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, we're a little further along, and now I get more <laughs> more mad about it. But, you know, it's the same thing on my part. I've I've got to be prepared – like I said, it doesn't necessarily have to be iAngler, but we we really have to be ready to say at some point this isn't going to be the best use of technology anymore. There's going to something better is going to come along, and we've got to be ready to kind of swallow our pride and say, okay, let's move on to something else because this is really obsolete. Because that's kind of what we're asking them to do, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know, when when you talked about the changes in the the data for MRIP, and if I'm not mistaken. One of the big things when I sat in on those, those web calls, the change in the format of the way they collected data, they all of a sudden felt as though they had a better understanding of the shoreline fishery. Mm-hmm. So they, they thought, okay, well, these people have been underrepresented in the past. And that is the segment, the population of recreational anglers that accounted for the most increase in most of the fisheries mm-hmm. all up and down the Atlantic and some of it, you're like, it just didn't make sense, right? And it introduced these new error percentage, you know, error PSE counts that are were embarrassingly high for yeah. some fisheries. Yeah. Um, but, again, they're kind of locked in this process of, well, this is the way we've done it. To switch midstream, it's, the the bus is already moving, and it's just too hard to get it to turn real quick like that. So we've got to just keep chipping away. Right, right. So, um, well, you, you mentioned know, that it's the, it's,
0: it's got to be a, a partnership. That's I think a key point to repeat. And we've all got to, we're all in it together, whether we like it or not. You know, these are shared public resources. And and that story about Mister Collier is is Doctor Collier, I assume. Um, is is yeah. fantastic, and, and there's absolutely those managers in every single state and every single jurisdiction that that truly want to get it right. I mean, nobody goes into fisheries management because they're not passionate or don't care about the resource or you know the actual angling component or some piece of the puzzle like that. Um, so you're right. There's absolutely has to be a building of trust, and that takes time. There has to be a, a building of data, and that takes time. There has to be an evolution of old systems into new and and it's going to happen, you know, I I think quite often anglers, we set our um, expectation on a much shorter timeline than what's, what's real. And so I think setting an expectation for straight bass anglers in Maryland or anybody that's, that may be considering this kind of information because next we're going to talk about some of the conversations you and I have already had with Maryland DNR Um, expectation setting to me is always a big piece of the puzzle and, um, so from the trust factor and anglers giving the angler action foundation, their data, talk a little bit about the management of that and some of the process, because, you know, when we deal with a, a government agency, there's quite often, um, open meetings or public information act, uh, type or public information laws that exist. Um, so how do you handle that right. when you're working with the States? And, and so you capture the anglers information, how do you store it? What do you do with it? And, um, just to give people an understanding that maybe they should have they should have trust there it's not the boogeyman
1: right yeah yeah you know when i w- when i really think about all the problems with self-reported angler data and the barriers that we have the arguments and or discussions passionate discussions with fisheries managers or other fishermen i don't ever really take that stuff home and think about it at night and stay up worrying about it mm-hmm. what i worry about is data security you know, we get to a point where, oh, my gosh, we've got so much data that it's going to have value to somebody to hack in. And right now, nobody, nobody wants what's in there. Anglers don't actually have to give their exact location. They can name their location in it so they can filter through their own data and say, okay, I'm going to Dave Sikorsky's secret striper spot. But as long as the county and the state are reported, that's good enough from the management plan. Gotcha. But as you said, being a private organization, we're not subject to freedom of information type laws, or here in Florida, sunshine state laws, or so that the government doesn't own that data. So you, as a resident, can't essentially sue them and say, "I want it." Right. Okay. So, um, and that was one of the things that was attractive to Florida was they could say we could ask the information on a need to know basis, and that's it. We don't need to know the angler's email. We just have to have a control number that was randomly assigned to them from you and their county and the information about those fishing trips. We don't need to know the exact location. You can leave those columns out when you send it. So if you were to sue the state of Florida for the data that we gave them after it left us, you wouldn't really get much out of it. That's going to help you go out and you know find somebody's secret spot. So, um, but yeah, we, we keep that data here. Uh, we've got three different databases and there's a primary and a, and a backup and a, and a second backup. It's based in Texas, actually. That's where our programmer company is. And, um, we haven't, if the capability is there, we could have millions of anglers coming in and we can handle all that. We're ready for it. That's, that's not a concern. Um, you know, We've talked about security every couple of months on our calls. I'll, I'll bring it up and say, all right, where are we? Is there anything new, any new technology we want to talk about implementing here? And so uh, we, we, we do what we can on our end to make sure that it's not something that's going to get hacked into and leaked out. We get, just like everyone else that's got any kind of database, there's continuous attempts to get in from um, foreign bots, You know, Russian and Chinese. It's always kind of funny. Because um, I get a report and it's <laughs> pretty interesting stuff. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's kind of where we are with that. Um, I think we've had the primary one go down three or four times for a couple of minutes, and it just jumps over automatically to the backup. And when the front when the front one comes back online, it, it flips back over to that node and. Fills that information from the backup data set, and no one reporting is knows anything about it. So we're um, we're feeling pretty good about that, and that includes all of the you know angler tournament, which is you know sometimes we run 30 tournaments in a weekend around the mm-hmm. well, around the world now. So um, and of course CCA Star data, we built the uh, app and database for CCA Florida to use in their star tournament. And that pulls in between five and 10,000 anglers for a hundred and one day derby. And all the fish they report goes into a database that we, we house and manage as well. That's great.
0: Now, so is the information you capture in a tournament similar to what's caught in uh, or captured in iAngler? angler or there's some differences there?
1: Oh, there's it's similar, but it's definitely different. Um, You know, the motivation of the anglers fishing in a tournament is different than someone going out on a weekend, especially if there's money involved. But, you know, you think about a tournament that you run where they get points for the longest fish and then they let it go. Mm -hmm. So it's not in their best interest to report the smaller fish because that's five or ten seconds that they could be fishing once they let the big fish go to try to catch another one. So as you would guess, our data from tournaments the size structure tends to be larger fish makes sense. And this is, it's. it's been great to be able to see that and to have enough data points that we can actually look at it, plot it out and say, wow, look at this. Here's one of those biases. So that tournament data and the Florida star data, when they call and ask for our trout data, we don't send any tournament data. It's just the voluntary self-reported everyday fishermen. And you know, those are separate databases. Um, Awesome. And, and as you would guess, the CCA star redfish that are tagged, those have to be in the slot. That's another fishery that's managed by a slot down here. Mm-hmm. So there's a very, there's a half million dollars in prizes in that great tournament. But it's all for uh, 99% of the the prizes are for a slot sized redfish that's got that lucky magic tag in it. So... When you break down that data, you see a huge balloon of slot-sized redfish. And once they catch it, if there's no tag in it, there's no increased benefit in reporting it over other fish. So that's definitely a bias and effort. Mm-hmm. You, know, you would assume from that, okay, well, if, that, if they tag juvenile fish, us fishermen are better than you would think. They know where the juveniles are, where the slot size are, where the big ones are. They fish for them in totally different ways and totally different places. So right, right. It's a, it's a, to me, it's a great example of showing that even us fishermen, us dumb fishermen, <laughs> we can see these differences and biases. And we can not necessarily make the measurements ourselves, but mm-hmm. we can start to explain them. And you get an idea of where you've got to start measuring and making adjustments. Because yeah, once yeah. you know what the bias is and you can account for it, well then, that data might
0: be good. All right. So if somebody was going to log, on, listen to this podcast, check out, download any of the apps that you have, um, and so not the tournament apps. Their their goal should be to go out there and report on a county level, you know, a tighter resolution if they want location wise, but county and state level. Name those spots. Keep them in their little in their iAngler app, um, and then ultimately they're giving us how many fish they catch. And if it's zero, zero is important. Like you already mentioned, um, in talking about the, the my fish count, zero is important. The number of undersized fish you're, you're catching is important. You're kind of almost out there being a citizen scientist, which is exactly what the, this kind of program can do: is empower anglers to p- report that data. And so that's where it is important for folks that participate in I angler to, to send the truth in. And in every fishery, I've you know sat through so many different fisheries management conversations where. Commercial recreational doesn't matter. There's always folks that are concerned, and so they skew the data by giving misinformation. And it could, they think they're trying to beat the system. And I can't think of a single instance where that's worked out for the anglers or for the resource. Um, And so it's important that, from you know, we we face these kinds of situations with any fishery that anglers, if they're going to participate, then be honest about it and, and recognize their own personal bias they could have. Uh, I was talking to friends about this the other day at a a chapter meeting of ours and talking about some of the statistics and and the importance of just accuracy and where some of these bias can can lie, and uh, we were joking around. I said, hey, if I asked – you got in off a a great day on the water, you know, fish on top that you just – one of those days where you just couldn't stop catching stripers, and there's two or three guys on the boat, you're going to come into the dock, and if I see you or if you – let's say you get intercepted by somebody, you're going to say, oh, we, we released 100 fish. Well, you probably released about 30, you know, or, or whatever, you know, <laughs> the real number, right? We're, we're anglers. We always expand what we, yeah. uh, the size of the fish and the number of them and, you know, but sure. it's important for folks to, to really, you know, kind of take it seriously. Um, I know, I know somebody that has a, uh, a little counter on board and they, they actually count every fish they release and they participate in a uh, volunteer angler survey. And that's why they do that. So they take it, take it pretty seriously and it's not uh, a terrible burden. Uh, Chris Horton was mentioning with the, uh, Alabama, I think it's called Snapper Check. He said, "You know, it takes a couple minutes looking at your phone, riding into the inlet, and uh, and making that report." So, talk a little bit about um, how folks report on the app. Is it just the app? Can they do it on a on a computer? Um, I know a lot of folks still do just pen and paper logbooks. So, is that something they can use and and supply this data into iAngler that could potentially you know help and cause...
1: for sure, yeah. If you have a if you have a well, you asked a couple of questions there, so we'll start with that one. If you have a logbook of data that goes back 20 years, and you wanted to be able to put that in there, just so that you could use our filtering features and say, "All right, I want to see all my trips where I caught at least five stripers um, on, a, on a rising tide," at you know, in this county or at this. Dave Sikorsky's secret spot or whatever, mm-hmm. you can put those parameters in and pull just that information out of your own trips. You can't see anyone else's. That's why it's password protected, and that's why it's, the more trips you enter, the more value there is. Um, or more importantly, you might look at Dave's secret spot and just say, all right, let's just take all these trips, and then we'll look at high tide versus low tide or um, sunrise versus sunset, You know, those types of things. And all that information can be entered in there. You can download it to an Excel and filter it that way, or you can filter many of those fields straight in the system. It can hold all your photos for you. And you can report it on an app. You can, you know, all these inf- information like lengths, um, a photo of the fish. It's great to have it, but it's not mandatory. Mm-hmm. If you just supply the numbers and 30% of the people supply lengths, once enough people are reporting, we'll have enough length-based data to get an understanding of the size structure of that fishery. But of course, you know, we want more. So it's, you know, you've got the option to put it there and it doesn't take that long. Um, You also can report on a, on a laptop. There's, I would say our most prolific reporter, our two most prolific reporters, there's two guys down here that have each one's logged over 2000 and one's logged over 1,500 trips, and both of them write down information, take notes, and then go home and put it in on a, on a laptop. It's just easier for them. And, and to be honest, that's the way I used to always do it myself until about the the newest version of the app, or I should say about four years ago, that change in the app made it actually easier for me to just use the app for most, most of my trips now. mm mm-hmm. The, uh, I've used
0: the app quite a bit and, of course, haven't had too many fishing trips recently, but I, I've noticed it it's, it's pretty darn easy. So where would folks go? Um, what's the, where's the best place for folks to go if they wanted to see that web interface and, and understand it and look at it and, and log in um, both on a website or on the App
1: Store? What are, what are folks looking for? So the, the app is just iAngler, one word. Um, it's, we don't pay for advertising, so when you put that in your search engine, it might not be the top one. I think there's a couple that might respond to that query ahead of us. So you want to make sure it says iAngler by Angler Action, and the, the tile icon is orange, and the website is just angleraction.org. Great. And the website requires a login just like the app. It's It's your same username and password, and when you type in something into one, it'll show up on the other. It synchronizes both directions.
0: There you go. So folks that are willing to do it on their phone can do it on their phone. If they're not using their phone that day, they can also use it. Use the uh, angleraction.org website and the login and password are the same for that. And that, it's also, this. Uh, if well, you have a login and password for iAngler Tournament, is it the same for iAngler or any of your other apps?
1: So any of the other apps, it will be the same. And uh, my fish count, it's another one, if you're primarily fishing in federal waters, you might prefer that one you kind of have options there there those are two that are going to merge and they'll be the same um and actually one of the things that my fish Count is going to be offering we just have built in that the south atlantic council raised funds for is it will automatically load the weather information in for you off the noaa buoys and all of the, the ships that report data you know report weather data and if you backdate your trips, if you put information in from your past trips, it will auto-fill those trips with the weather information as well. It will pull it from archives and auto-populate your, your old trips. Um, and iAngler will have that as well once we merge them together. But, um, yeah, that's it. And in the in the website, again, it's just angleraction.org. So you're doing one of those. The app is free. Um All of the other apps besides the tournament app, they use the same username and password. The tournament has its own database. It's a separate structure. So you can use the same one and you can link them so that your tournament trips will match up with your iAngler trips. But that's a step that you have to take yourself. There's a button now that says, you know, I think when you register for it, it'll ask you if you have an account in the other one. And then you can put in your username and password. And that way, when you put a tournament trip in, that information will populate into your iAngler database.
0: Gotcha. So a lot of our members and folks that may be listening to this that have participated in our tournaments can have that option and then start logging their just regular fishing trips on iAngler or Chesapeake Catch. Because if I'm not mistaken, the da- database is the same, uh, regardless of whether that what that skin looks like. So yes, for the Chesapeake, you can use Chesapeake Catch. Uh, but iAngler would go to the same database and iAngler Tournament goes to a separate one because how we discuss the, the data is different um, and you don't want to correct connect those two. That's it's, that's great. So plenty of functionality and uh, no real excuse not to do it and not to give it a try, especially in a, in a situation like we have where we keep hearing about the the data issues that exist in, in recreational angling. So with that, I'm going to segue to some of the conversations we've already had in Maryland. And uh, we have the course the striped bass fishery which is um is our most popular our state fish um and we've been hearing we need better recreational angler data i already mentioned the the changes in mrip which led to um less precise information and stuff that, that a lot of folks are having a hard time believing um a number one of the idea one of the uh numbers i threw out there and I've thrown out quite a bit stands out in my head is uh in the March-April period of 2017, uh, it's believed that 513,000 striped bass were released in, in, uh, in state waters. And of course, that's a cold time of year with tough weather, and it's not a season that's open until the very end of that period, that 61-day period. Um, it was traditionally our trophy season, which has now been uh, moved to May 1st. But in 2017, it said 513,000 and change uh, fish were released by anglers, and that's something like 8,400 fish per day. Um, so that one stands out to me um, as an issue. And so if folks are fishing uh, this March, and um, of course they can't fish in April and target striped bass, they can immediately start plugging stuff into iAngler. Um, but we've had conversations with the state about um, trying to make sure that the data that we p- get people to capture right now and then hopefully build a larger partnership so we even get more people to to provide that data and, uh, and hopefully use it in, in – an analysis as we move forward and, and things change with the stock of striped bass and some of these other fish. So one conversation we've been having, uh, we've been kind of having a couple of them, some with the, with the title folks and the, and, and folks that manage the title fisheries like striped bass. And then we just recently had a conversation with, uh, with the inland division who's in charge of snakeheads and invasives like blue catfish. And so, Mm-hmm. while well, we don't have uh, any conclusions there yet, I wanted our listeners to understand that, that we're having that conversation with the department because our ability to report what we're catching both in frequency in size and um, you know, the effort data, whether we catch zero or we catch a hundred um, it's important for managers to know that so they can plug it in as they try and capture a general understanding of the population of snakeheads, the range of snakeheads. Uh the same thing with blue catfish, which are seem to be, Um, expanding everywhere and and there are some interesting Mm -hmm. pieces um, as the state right now is considering um, commercial pilot programs to allow uh, for different gear types like electrofishing for blue catfish uh, to try and really build markets for them so Anyway, we've been yeah. talking about what the a- recreational angler's role can be in some of these invasive species situations. So, have you done much with invasives in, in other parts of the state, or have you have any advice for us as we get moving forward on this effort in Maryland?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great one because you know when you first started off there talking about stripers and that really, I don't want to say outlandish, but a, a number that seems really hard to believe. For the number of fish released in that two-month stretch—that's um, a difficult one. You know, we we could, as recre—when I say we, I mean recreational anglers—we could help solve that issue through self-reporting. But we'd have to first figure out exactly how far we want to go with this. You know, we have, we we have to figure out as a community: do we want this to be a voluntary thing where just some people are able to? represent us because if that's the case, that's fine, but it makes it very difficult to solve that problem, mm-hmm. to figure out what the effort is. And, you know, that's the, that's the, the managers always say, well, it's very difficult to figure out effort and abundance. Mm-hmm. Those are the two words that they usually get beat over the head with by the naysayers on the science side over voluntary reporting. And what they mean by those effort and abundance, the effort is the number of anglers that are going out and fishing and how much time they're spending fishing. So if you don't know what percentage of people are using the app, it makes it very difficult to expand out those numbers to, to make a guess on how many people are actually going out and fishing, how many hours and how many fish they caught. And then as the people that go to the M rep course that you referenced, they'll, they'll see one of the methods that managers can use to take the size structure of landings to estimate the abundance of fish out there, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's difficult again as a voluntary platform to to tackle that number as well. Those are those two are kind of the holy grail of recreational anglers, mm-hmm. with the millions of us out there fishing. Until they figure out how to accurately get an idea of how many of us there are and what they're doing, no matter what they do, there's going to be fisheries where there's going to be massive mistakes. So we've always talked about it like a weatherman trying to forecast a hurricane by measuring a single snowflake. (laughs) That's what, that's what kind of what they have to deal with, with the amount of data they have. Right. right. And they might come up with models that are better, but you're still trying to figure it out from one snowflake. And we can, we can change that if we decide we want to go that route. Um, But it's it's kind of going to be on us. And I I don't know (laughs) what the answer to that is. I'm deep enough into this whole self-reporting thing that, I shouldn't be the one that says whether this should be voluntary or mandatory. I just should wait and see what direction it goes and try to help make it do the best work that it can.
0: Right. Right. Well, it's,
1: um,
0: so is it, I, I, I in some ways you want to solve the problem, right? Without a doubt. But is it's kind of like eating an elephant, I guess you have to take it one bite at a time and figure out what the priorities are. And I think that's kind of the direction the conversation is definitely going right now with Maryland DNR. It's, we only have so many resources and we need to take this one step at a time prioritize what answers we're trying to get what are the most important and so are they related to a catch and release effort are they related to harvest effort um you know I know I have my opinions as well and we're going to have to walk through this process as a community and I think it's important you mention that because the community must lead um and and be behind any effort that uh, to improve the data that of our activ related to our our activities um
1: yeah Now, on the science side, I think it's realistic to us to really pressure them to figure out what questions involved in fisheries management can be answered with these different levels of self-reporting. So voluntary reporting from a handful of anglers, what can you get from that? And let's focus on it and incorporate it, and then we can build on it from there. Um, I've, I've described stock assessments now that I've learned more about it as a Pie with a thousand slices and every one of those slices is a piece of information that some of them they're really good at some of this you mentioned i, you know, I listened to your last podcast and you talked a little bit about fishery dependent where they go out and they they shock fish with the scientists and they look at the juvenile and they get an idea of what the year class was like well that's one slice of The management pie, one slice of data where they try to understand the fishery, and all these different other little slices: angler behavior, weather patterns, water quality, all the stuff that goes into it. Which of those slices of pie can we help improve with self-reported data, so that when you zoom out and look at it, you can tell that that's a blueberry pie, or you know, a pumpkin pie, or whatever, Mm -hmm. with with more accuracy than what they have now. So. You know, on our side, again, we're to try to figure out exactly how far we want to go. That's, that's going to be on us. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as the science side, being responsible for looking at this stuff and taking it seriously and determining what they can do with it now and doing it, I feel like we, we should feel comfortable with trying to pressure them to go that direction. Because ultimately, all we're trying to do is help them understand the fishery so that it doesn't collapse yet we have an appropriate amount of access.
0: Right. Right. Absolutely. And so Oh, we started step one. I, I didn't
1: Yeah. And I didn't want to forget about your, your invasive fish question. That's um that is one area that I know that self reported data can immediately help. Those are non stock assessed type fisheries. So we can give we can become their best data source on range. And size structure and, you know, the catch rates per hour, unit of effort that if you're out there in one area and you're catching catfish three an hour, and then the next year you go to that same spot and you're catching them at 10 an hour, and, every, and so is everyone else, you can pretty much make the assumption that that population is growing in that area. Um, and we can we can easily show that to them. And we have many, many invasive fish down here in Florida. And Believe it or not, one of the things that we've partnered with this, with the South Florida Water Management District, which is in charge of the Everglades restoration effort down here, is using our tournament app to capture location and abundance of an invasive apple snail, because this gigantic snail, freshwater snail that's here from China, it's pretty cool looking. It gets about as big as your fist huh. well. A normal person's fist, I've seen your meat hook hands, maybe not yours, but <laughs> th- that snail is an herbivore. And we've got these STAs that we've spent millions of dollars on, stormwater treatment areas that are designed to filter water with vegetation so that we can then send it down to the Everglades or do something useful with it. And these apple snails will get in there and wipe out every bit of grass in an entire SDA to the point where they've got to drain it to kill the snails. So they're like, well, what do we do? And somebody in the, in the work working group there said, I have an idea. I know this guy that's got an app. And this is one of the advantages of not being a government group. They're constantly bound by having to follow the mission of, you know, they're, they're, they're hired based on taxpayer money. And so they're very particular about not getting off a tangent. They're doing what their job is. And it's kind of a joke that you say, oh, they're not going to – a government worker is not going to do a, a bit more than he has to. Well, in a way, you don't want them to. They've got a job to do that we're paying them to do, and you want to make sure they do that. So they're kind of hamstrung a lot of times, whereas in this particular case, this person called me and said, how soon can you set something up for me where we can report our apple snail sightings in a tournament? It was lunchtime. I said, I can have it for you. I can have it to you by 2 o'clock so you can take it out and pilot it. And that was it. And they they've been using it and able to put maps of densities of apple snails in the area and and get a handle on how it's it's spread throughout the Everglades restoration project areas.
0: That's fantastic. And that's that's a lot of so the conversation we did have with uh, Maryland DNR was you know trying to dig through and figure out exactly what information they want, and that's where the conversation stopped for now. Um, There's kind of the balls in their court, and I'll be reaching back out to those folks here shortly to figure it out. And and they are kind of considering, um, from my understanding, some of the different challenges that may exist, and making sure that the data we capture as private individuals is given to the state in the right way and and follows all the different rules. And invasives, of course, are sure. There's folks that are still debating whether snakeheads are good or not. The northern snakehead, which is spread throughout the Chesapeake watershed, uh, there's folks that want to catch and release them, and um, of course it is illegal to transport them. Um, you're supposed to only release mm-hmm. them into the waters where you catch them and that's up to the individual. If they don't want to harvest that animal, you know, I don't, I don't foresee a time when, um, uh, eliminating or killing an animal is mandated, but you know, we'll see. Um, so, you know, folks don't want to participate to, because they're concerned about, uh, the location. Um, I'm, I'm envisioning some effort where we encourage folks to give the department the location of these invasives, but, even if they don't, just their catch and effort and size structure is extremely important and that's where it comes back to being a really cool log book for anglers. And they could do that tomorrow using iAngler using Chesapeake yeah. Catch, correct?
1: That's that's right, for sure. Yeah. I you know, I've so I've I've logged every fishing trip I've been on, of course, you know, for ten years. And uh and like you it's not nearly enough. But I'm up to 98 species in my logbook now and I can't crack that hundred species <laughs> spark no matter what. And I, I thought, I thought I did it. And then I went back and I'm like, Oh, that was a test trip. That wasn't even a real trip. I had to delete it. <laughs> but, uh, and then just last night, um, you know, I had my cichlid fish tacos at a friend's house fish that I caught down here in the Everglades it was delicious. Nice. So, um, but yeah we have a ton of invasive fish down here and and just me and my my friends here in my neighborhood the i can pull up you know certain maps of of the species plots but it's it's easy to see over time how some of them the range has increased 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 yeah yeah so
0: yeah and, and so the uh the last conversation that's kind of happening um with Maryland DNR and kind of the conclusion on the tidal water the Chesapeake section you know, and talking with managers, like you mentioned, they have a job to do. They have so much going on. Resources are decreasing uh, to the agency, financial resources. And, um, and so we're figuring out, you know, what, what is a fishery that maybe would, would be the easiest to get going on and trying to capture better information in the Chesapeake region? And cobia is, the, uh, is that species that, that Maryland DNR has mentioned to us and said, hey, maybe cobia is a good place to start. It's an emerging fishery. Uh, they're one of the many species that seem to be moving further north um, in their range. And well, granted, there's always been cobia in the Chesapeake. Um, Maryland has only recently uh, in, implemented regulations, and that's due to some management changes and just the prevalence of them being here in our waters. Um, and so, for the I think it's been maybe two or three seasons now that we've actually had a size limit and a creel limit. And um, and I know in probably the last six, eight years, seven years, um, folks have been catching. Really small cobia as well in some areas in the lower Chesapeake Bay, which are now not legal to keep. Uh, You have to follow a minimum size, which I think is about forty inches. Um, But ultimately, it's as these fisheries emerge, it's seemingly a perfect time for folks to really hop on board and, and start logging their catch. And so we're hopeful. At least I'm hopeful that maybe an eye angler cobia or or something along those lines could be developed and. What would it take for somebody? Let's just say somebody's listening anywhere in the world right now to to get their own iAngler, and you know they could like I think we've said a couple times, you can use iAngler the way it is now, you can use Chesapeake Catch the way it is now. But I don't know. Let's say they wanted an Apple Snail app. What would it What would it take for them to work with you all to uh, to create that?
1: Yeah, that would be uh, typically if what you're talking about is what we call a, creating a skin for somebody where. We would, we would give them the app and they would get to kind of make a, some, some design changes and pretty it up and have associated website. Um, and mm-hmm. it would be one of the ones that, again, the if you already had an iAngler account, you could switch over to the new one and use the same username and password. They're all in the same family. Um, but the data that you capture, like say in Chesapeake Catch, it goes into your database and then falls through into the larger database, along with all the other stuff, so the if you're asking what the price on that is it's it's I, there isn't a specific thing. it always just kind of depends on how many little tweaks and stuff you want to make but and on average, it's under ten thousand dollars for us to do something like that where someone can have their own Apple and Android apps and associated website that you know what the beauty of that is. And someone says, yeah, we like that, but we want to put in – we want to add this feature, and that might be a little bit extra. But what's great is everyone else that's got an app in that same suite benefits from it because we'll just go ahead and upgrade everyone else at the same time. So um, it is something that's easy, and we've started to kick around the idea of just coming out with some open source coding that other apps that aren't affiliated with us can have just so that we can get more people collecting data that's useful. You know, this, this is the only suite of app that we're aware of that was designed not for the purpose of getting anglers to buy it or, you know, it's no commercial product or anything like that. Or it's, so it was designed with the research intent. So it's the only one that, you know, the data can be extracted and used in a format that's readable by these biologists right away. Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: Um, yeah, well, that's important. I think it's important for folks to understand because you can see the different apps. You want to know the difference in them, but also understand if you have this creative idea, um, you know, give, give Brett and give, give your, your foundation a, a shout and say, Hey, we want to try and tackle this. And what's the right way to do it? Maybe, maybe it is just continue to use iAngler. Um, and, uh, that's what I continue to use. Um, even though I, uh, helped develop the just be catcher was, you know, help provide some guidance on that. I, I happen to have Iangler angler on my phone and that's the one I go to and that's my log book. And i log trips in, uh, Maryland, Florida, Texas, you know, North Carolina, any place I may travel to fish in, in tidal waters. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, I've enjoyed it looking back at a log book and seeing comparison of how many fish I caught, how many fish I released the date, like you mentioned, the, the weather, there's some weather in there. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, on, so, you know, it's been a great tool for me. And of course, I've gotten very involved in the iAngler tournament piece. So if there's folks out there that wanted to host an angler tournament, um, I think you'd be the right guy to reach out to, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. Just send me an email, brett at org. And um, as you know, we usually, there is a small fee that will we'll, you know, kind of work with the people and say, all right, well, what are you doing here? And how much of an effort is it going to put on our side to set it up? But Mm -hmm. there's usually a a couple bucks per angler that we will ask for to to run a tournament for you. But the app itself, you know, for the anglers to download it and and join your tournament, it's free for them.
0: Yep. Yeah. And if folks are wondering about uh, the fee, it's, it's, it's really simple to, you know, they set up the the tournament for you. And like Brett said, of course, have that conversation and and figure out exactly what you want determine that price. But then folks are, it's as simple as downloading the app and, and paying through PayPal so it's a really tra- a simple transaction for anybody interested in putting together a, a tournament and uh, and using that kind of tool. So I would recommend to everybody out there to consider this kind of technology. And and for us at CCA Maryland, um, we started using it just because it made things simple. It's a it's a ready to go uh, page where folks can sign up. You can explain all the rules and and really customize them to the look and feel that you want for your event. But also for us, just being a you know promoting conservation, promoting careful catch and release. Uh, for us it's folks can take a picture of that fish against the ruler and let it go Um, and especially in species that are overfished and overfishing is occurring like the striped bass I think that's the responsible thing to do in fishing tournaments is to to promote that release educate folks on how they can be uh, good stewards of the resource and and um, I you know I actually talked to some folks down in North Carolina that were considering uh, working with you or they had a their flounder fishery shut down and they have this long-standing flounder tournament so why not take advantage of uh, of a catcher and lease format? Continue that friendly comp- uh, competition, and hopefully the the regulations that are put in place will re- restore that fishery. And you know, years down the road, maybe it becomes a harvest tournament again. But but not lose that camaraderie and that connection that that communities have around fishing yeah. tournaments that are, that are so much fun.
1: Yeah, and, and um, you know, just because that data isn't supplied for the stock assessments that represent our catch doesn't mean that it's not really valuable. You know, we've, we've had tournaments now that we've run for six years in a row. That's how long we've had that app going. And especially in these areas where there's red tide, where they were catch photo release tournaments anyhow, but we've been able to go back now over six years, and some of them are pretty big events with hundreds of anglers, and look at the catch rates and the size structure of their target species, primarily snook trout and red, and you really can see from year to year what species were abundant and what species were more, you know, people had to put more work in to try to find them and catch them. Yeah. So that type of trending data is actually there's a couple of biologists here in Florida. That's that's the data set that they're really interested in exploring and they think will have some immediate um, impacts on helping them understand fisheries response to these episodic events that again the current MRIP data collection platform just isn't sensitive to, even in those species that they call, quote, data rich. Yep,
0: yep. Absolutely. Well so there's a lot of different things that can be uh that, that this kind of information can be used for. We've heard about some of the great stories where it has been plugged into management and the potential is there. And I think the take home message for folks is that the, uh, the kind of the future is in our hands. If we want to stand up and, and take some action and start logging catch and, and capturing this data, um, you know, it it could be usable. And it's a matter of designing new systems in the proper way to answer the questions that we need to, to answer, working with the management agencies in partnership. And of of course, there's always tremendous partners from the sport fishing industries uh, that support these kinds of efforts. And, and, um, you know, that's, that's, we're in it together to to try and improve our fisheries and make sure we have a better picture of what our impacts are as our world is changing, as our our human impacts on land continue to impact our ecosystems. um, It's important that we're responsible and, and are are giving back to our fisheries in this way so that, so that they're managed properly. And yes, it is a frustrating process at times. Uh, Like I said, on the last episode, fisheries management is a marathon, not a sprint. And so it's important that we recognize that and uh, and try and you know temper frustration in this process as much as possible, even though it is frustrating. But realize the managers, yeah. the participants, no matter what gear they use, whether they keep their fish or not, you know everybody's in it together, and we all have to stick together as a community to try and um, tackle some of these challenges that we face.
1: For sure, and you know I'm glad you you said all that because it reminded me of, uh, of a couple things. But one is I did want to mention. You know, traditionally, you think of the fishing industry as being um, not really being conservation oriented, but more, but concerned with you know the dollar and, and today's dollar. And um, it's actually been really refreshing to, to get the response from you know, first of all, the group that represents the industry, American Sport Fishing Association. They have been very supportive and helping connect us with people and and and. Just conceptually to the idea of self-reporting, they recognize the long-term conservation value here. And their their conservation director, in particular, you know, shout out to Mike Leonard and and here in Florida, their their representatives um, Kelly Ralston. They've just been really great partners and sounding boards to help um, think through some ideas. And um, and while I'm at it, I'll just mention a couple. Of, uh, companies that have been directly helpful as well in Yamaha and uh, West Marine, you know, they're not, they don't, we don't sell ads to them on our app. They're just people that have helped us in, in different ways along the way without asking for any, you know, shout out or anything like that or ad space, but they recognize, you know, there's something that's got to be done to help manage these fisheries better, not just so we have access, but again, to make sure that we don't overfish them. Um, so there, there's partners out there that we weren't expecting that have really come through and been helpful.
0: Uh, that's important to understand. If you, I come from a small business background and, and, uh, you know, understand that it's always important to, to look out into the future and recognize what's going to change. And even these big companies, like you just mentioned are doing that. And Yamaha has a tremendous leader in, in conservation. I'm proud to have a, a gray motor on the back of my boat, even though I never see it. Um, but you know, they, it is great for folks and anglers to understand who is giving back and ASA, of course, yes, the American sport fishing, uh, association, uh, the trade association. So, um, tackle manufacturers and, 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 others that are part of the sport fishing industry that we all support. Um, it, it's great to know that their leadership is in place. I know Mike and Kelly are, are both tremendous champions for conservation and, uh, and for finding a, a tremendous balance in in our use of the resource and its future. And and so that's some, I'm glad I'm really glad you mentioned all those all those organizations and companies because um, it is important and uh, you know it's funny I didn't realize this until Googling around a little bit you're an author you've uh, you've written some stuff a, a book I think on snook fishing <laughs> tell me a little bit about that and then this is a long one but I'm if uh, I'm glad important information so we're gonna keep chatting a little mo- little longer here and uh, tell us a little more about you how'd you yeah. get into this and how'd you get into writing and become a obsessed snook angler to be sitting in the seat you're in today. <laughs>
1: Well, it, uh, you know, I think that, that happened because of my involvement with the Snook Foundation, and I learned more and more about them, and then that was it. I was kind of pigeonholed, uh, but I, I started, I've been fishing all my life. I grew up near Buffalo on the Great Lakes and um, and fished up there with my mom and dad and my grandma and grandpa, and, and, and um, we've, we used to come to Florida all the time. My parents, my grandparents moved down, so eventually I ended up moving down here as well. But I didn't start writing until um, I had kids, and I changed, I shifted my career path a little bit so that I could be off in the summers. I worked in schools as soon as we had kids. And those first couple of summers off just killed me. I was going bored and just started writing. And so I've been writing for uh, magazines for about 20 years. And primarily now I just write for Florida Sportsman. And, uh, yeah, that book was – they have a series of books um, called Sportsman's Best. So I, I wrote their Snook book for them. Um, I guess it's been seven or eight years now. But, yeah, I've, I've, I've realized now I've published a couple hundred articles with them and um, who knows how many on other online forums in our own emails that I, I finally feel okay saying, all right, I'm an outdoor writer. <laughs> love it, love it. Well, in communicating, those so things. many I know so many that are so good. I feel kind of embarrassed in including myself in that conversation, but I guess I'm to that point now.
0: Well, you know, it's in this day and age with uh, how quickly we can communicate with things like Facebook and Instagram, and you know, all these online forums that that have existed in the fishing community for a long time. Uh, people are sharing information a lot, and it's it's to me it's important that we get accurate information out there. We have the folks that have kind of uh, the the outdoor writers have always been folks that can we can rely on and an important part of our community. So you know it's important that they continue to exist. And and as the platform may change, it seems like they're changing quite frequently uh, in recent years. It's important to know there's some good folks out there still putting pen to paper. You know tapping the keys and and putting books out there. I just happened to purchase your book while we've been talking. So. Um, all right. The book and DVD combo are headed my way and, uh, I'll look forward to reading it.
1: Great. All right. <laughs> so,
0: well, fantastic. Well, I appreciate the time, Brett. We're going to uh, include a number of links to some of the things we've been talking about, some articles you've written. And I would urge anybody listening along to, uh, to download iAngler, Chesapeake Catch, iAngler Tournament. If you, uh, participate in any of the CCA stuff, you've been, uh, our tournaments, you've already got iAngler Tournament on your phone. Um, and, and I hope you learned something about its, its functionality and what you can do. And again, we don't have to wait for anybody to start capturing data, logging our catch. It It is privately held. And, uh, and maybe if we get things together with the state and build some partnerships with companies and, and folks in the industry and the, in the state of Maryland and other states in the mid Atlantic, we can start answering some of these questions on fisheries like Cobia, like invasives, like striped bass, um, maybe many others. Um, but if we wait, Wait to start then, uh, we'll lose the time between now and then of of capturing information. So it's never too early to start logging your catch. It's uh, take even log books you already have in the past and and enter them in, and and let's work together to try and find some creative ways to, uh, to convey to the community what's happening out there and hopefully use some of this information in management.
1: Outstanding. Well, David, thank you very much for what you do, for all the effort you've done in the past and the work you've done on behalf of fisheries and even this podcast. I mean, that your last, your last episode there with Chris was great. It was very informative and we're not going to hurt ourselves by learning more. That's for sure. So you've been great about getting the word out and sharing what you know. And and you've been a good trooper for recreational anglers.
0: Well, I appreciate that, Brett. I'm one of many in the army and uh, couldn't do it without the the great membership of CCA Maryland and, and CCA across the country. Um, as the largest recreational angling group of its kind. Um, it, we rely on members. We're grassroots. Um, you're a nonprofit. Folks can donate to the iAngler Foundation. Um, we are as well. We want folks to join. That's why I'm fortunate enough to be able to sit in the seat I am and work on behalf of anglers and dig into this information to, and try and provide um, as many platforms as possible for folks to learn about their impact and, and what they can do to help move forward. So I appreciate the kind words, but I couldn't do it without the community around me, and I'm just honored to be a part of it. And, uh, and be able to continue to work with folks. So, again, thanks for folks for listening along. Um, you will see plenty of links in the, in the, the uh, description of this podcast. And stand by for some more information as things unfold with new regulations on Maryland striped bass season. And it's not just about 2020. Let's start looking to the, to the brighter future and many other fisheries and see what we can do as anglers to empower uh, managers and ourselves with, with better data and better information. I'll uh, leave us with uh, one exciting thing I haven't talked about in the podcast yet. At uh, last January's um, January 28th Sport Fish Advisory Commission meeting, which is an advisory commission with no regulatory authority, just simply tells uh, DNR what we would like to see them do when they ask for feedback on certain things. Um, we just created a subcommittee of tidal and Coastal recreational anglers. Um, I was asked to be a co-chair with um, the other co-chair is Scott Lennox, who is, um, was in a previous episode and, and the, the owner of uh, Fish in OC. And he also happens to be our appointee to the Mid-Atlantic Fishery Management Council. So with Scott being a coastal guy and uh, understanding their fisheries and, and sitting on the seat on the council, he and I are going to work through this subcommittee together. We're going to identify some folks uh, throughout the community that can join us to dig into some of these issues, try and design um, solutions to some of the problems that exist with with counting the catch of recreational anglers and understanding our catch and effort amongst other issues and really try and build better connectivity between the general angler and the sport fish commission and the leadership at Maryland DNR on up to the state house. So we can put some uh, priority priorities together and try and solve some problems together. Cause while yes, there's quite a a bit of disagreement that that occurs in the regulatory process uh, in the end, again, we all are together. So keep an eye out for more about that subcommittee and I can almost guarantee uh, Mr. Fitzgerald will be involved in the conversation along the way with that subcommittee. And as we continue to try and develop some great platforms here in Maryland. So thanks for listening along to episode 10. Thank you, Brett, for your time today on a Saturday and uh, go out and enjoy that warm weather.
1: Right on. Thank you very much, David. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks for the time.